Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. Vasiliadis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to be talking about sectionalism. This is period 4-4 notes. Here we go. Okay, so today we're talking about sectionalism, which can be characterized as a distinct political, socio, or economic loyalty to a particular region. In this case, the North and the South. And we're going to talk about how these interests are going to grow as we get closer to the eve of the Civil War in the 1860s. Yeah, we have to um, really understand that even within sections of the country, you have differing opinions, differing points of view, but you start to see the political rivalries between the North and the South being further entrenched where you start to see that the inevitability of the Civil War coming uh, going forward. So when we look at the North, we have to section it off into two sections. Um, the New England and Middle Atlantic states that are part of the original 13 colonies, they're considered the Northeast. But also you have the new part of the North, which is the Old Northwest or Northwest Territory, which is all the states spanning across Ohio, Minnesota. Um, this is a different region, much more developed economically in terms of the um, industrialization that is taking place in this area compared to the South. You have railroad lines um, connecting New York with the West. Um, and you also have this you know, new methods of commercial farming, which are starting to um, create mass production. This is something to note because a general misnomer or misconception is that the South was primarily involved in agriculture. But in the 1820s, despite all this growth in manufacturing, most Northerners are also going to be involved in agricultural, albeit they're not going to be doing cash crop, uh, large-scale farming that you see in the South, but they're going to be doing a lot of farming. Uh, most populous section in this country will be around this region as a result of an increase in immigration as well as a high birth rate. Um, we're going to focus on these two specific regions and then we're going to kind of venture off into the south. So the industrial northeast is what you'd probably most typically understand the north to be. By the 1830s, northern factories will exp expand beyond just the simple textile mills that we've learned about with Francis C. Lowell back in Massachusetts. Yes, and uh, we took a look at seeing how a lot of people are working simply because of the necessity to survive. And you have new immigrants that there's no other choice. And that's how the Lowell um, mills were utilizing the labor of women. And you also have children working here. But there's a, there's a backlash to that. When you have low-paying jobs with long hours and unsafe conditions, and you have children working and women working, there starts to be a push towards the rise of unionization. And that starts to emerge during this period, where people and workers are starting to fight for better conditions for themselves. Um, we have our very first labor party for, formed in 1828 in Philadelphia. But there's still uh, an essence, this is not about, um, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, socialism hasn't really created as an ideology yet, but there's this push towards collectivism and looking out for the common man 
uh, in these conditions, which is um, a little bit dicey from the perspective of the business owners. And they view this as more of a danger than it would be uh, a positive good. And the relationship between employer and employee is definitely going to drastically change during industrialization because as technology makes it easy uh, for anyone to kind of participate in this economy, the working class, the labor force, will become expendable, and they're going to be seen as expendable to the employers, rather than back in the 1700s, 1600s, 1400s, you have this idea of uh, artisanry, the idea that you have guilds, you have um, an apprentice, and you have to teach a particular skill set to this person. So you're going to treat that employee with great respect, because at some point, they're going to carry on that skill for whatever trade that you might have. Now that technology has replaced that, there is going to be a distinction between skilled workers, which are going to be very valuable in industrialized society, and unskilled workers, those who can just simply operate the machinery provided to them. Yeah, and as industrialization uh, grows, you start to see the inability for those skilled workers to find a wage. Right. And that's why people end up having to give up the prior uh, idea of what the economy was, and people are forced into becoming factory workers because there's really no other option. The large-scale industrialization in these major cities starts to take over. Um, you, you see here mentioning in the notes about the Massachusetts Supreme Court is the very first state that acknowledges the fact that some unions should have the right to negotiate their labor contracts, but they were only the peaceful unions in their sense. So the connotation there is that unions in general are causing chaos or causing problems rather than fighting for their rights. Um, but this is... Uh, in the case Commonwealth versus Hunt. But um, later on, 1840s, 1850s, in this industrial age, eventually there has to be some type of progress towards the worker. And labor unions' progress have been hampered, but you start to see them establishing restrictions like 10-hour workdays in this area. But the one thing that usually makes it difficult for labor unions to um, kind of galvanize and control the the working forces is things like recessions uh, where um, People are losing their jobs, so they'll take any job, and they're not going to take a job that is only up to the standard of the union. Uh, you have the fact that most employers are really hostile towards these unions because they view that as a threat to their profits. And with immigration coming in this next time period, there's always somebody else to replace that person. And as you mentioned before, Mr. V, the fact that you have low-skilled labor, it's much easier to replace these people than before. Right. And this gonna, this um, attraction to type of factory life is going to kind of also necessitate the growth of urban centers. And it's also going to have an impact on urban life. By 1800 to 1850, the northern population will grow from approximately 5% of the total population to 15%. Slums will also expand and increase in population crowding around housing, and which will lead to poor sanitation, infectious disease like cholera, uh, um, tuberculosis, um, and crime becomes more common characteristics of northern city life. Cities will still be attractive to native and immigrant populations, however, but it's, these urban centers will take on a new unique character. Interestingly enough, it is this type of uh, dirty reputation that southerners will utilize to defend their southern way of living in contrast to the industrialized north. Yeah, now within that north, we have uh, about a quarter million African Americans that only constitute about 1% of the population of the overall North, but this is about 50% of all the free African Americans in our country at this time. 
Um, one of the things you have to recognize, though, is free is relative term. They're largely segregated from society, have very little rights and ability to own property and things of this nature, let alone get work, uh, working jobs. So free from slavery and free from bondage does not mean having the freedom that you and I am enjoying to uh, excel in our uh, reaching our full potential. So th there starts to be rivalry between the immigrant population at, who have been displaced by free African-Americans fighting for jobs, and that is what uh, you see in some of the urban centers in the North. But because of this, many blacks are denied union membership and were sometimes hired by strike, uh, hired as strike breakers by the, the businesses, knowing to play the two groups at once uh, against one another. And we've seen this before with Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion, this idea that if we put the two groups, the lower class whites as well as the lower class blacks together, they're going to be too busy fighting with each other and not kind of talking or being angry collectively at this same type of enemy, the person who has enough capital. We're going to see other unions try to challenge uh, the ownership uh, the bourgeoisie class um, later, and some radical unions like Knights of Labor will really suffer the the, the, the ire of the government as well as people uh, that own capital during this time. The so, agricultural Northwest. We're going to turn gears here because this is something that largely goes unnoticed, but is also included in when we talk about the North in general. Uh, before the 1860, the following became the states. These were territories that became the states. 1803 of Ohio, 1816 Indiana, Illinois in 1818, Michigan in 1837, Wisconsin in 1848, and Minnesota in 1858. So you're having a tremendous amount of territory that has been acquired as a result of the Louisiana Purchase now kind of splinter off, break off into states. Yeah, so what is it that we do in our country to encourage the settlement of these new territories? We try to give people land at discount prices, basically. The Northwest Ordinance was one of the original ways in which we um, get the territorial claims of this region to the federal government, um, and it's unsettled until this time period. But how do we connect this part of the country to the urban centers of the Northeast? It's not until this time period and because of uh, Henry Clay's American system where we start to invest in the building of canals, railroads, and uh, bridges and roadways to get people and goods and commerce in and out of this region. Uh, one of the things you see emerging is staple crops of wheat, corn, and livestock being very unique and different to this section compared to the South. And um, one of the other important elements of this is uh, technological advancements like the steel plow. You have the John Deere and the Mechanical Reaper by Cyrus McCormick, which really help make farming more efficient. And we also have to notice that Northwest Ordinance passed in 1787 also banned slavery in these respective territories, which will also kind of uh, continue the tensions of sectionalism between the North and the South. I remember a lot of people in the Founding Fathers hoped to gradually dissipate the institution of slavery, and this act that was passed way in the 18th century was one of the steps to do that. However, things like the Missouri Compromise, things like the Three-Fifths Compromise kind of circumvented this type of policy. Um, to move on, uh, eventually with the, the addition of technology as, as well as staple crops, as mentioned before, new cities such as Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Cincinnati, and St. Louis will become bustling transportation points uh, with an intricate railway network. So they're going to be kind of like little areas or hubs that many people will stop along their way out to west. And it's going to be more uh, dominant in the later part of the century, but it's beginning to form now. Um, immigration. Um, immigration, of course, will affect both the Northwest as well as the Northeast. By 1820, only about 
8,000 immigrants will arrive from Europe. By 1830 to 50s, nearly 4 million people will emigrate from Northern Europe into the United States. Um, 1832 onward, number of immigrants will never fall below 50,000 a year. By 1854, we will have a record high as about of half a million people. You have to keep in mind that there are so many immigrants coming, and they are, generally speaking, welcomed by uh, by the employers, that by the people that own a tremendous amount of the industries. Why? They stand to gain by having an available, cheap, abundant labor force. The more people that are asking for jobs, the more willing they can hire strike bakers. The more willing they can um, they can reject or even ignore. The, the rights of unions. So you're beginning to see there is now going to be a resentment between white American working class and the immigrants coming here. Yeah, and, and whenever you talk about immigration, you always have to think that, yes, there are um, factors that encourage people to immigrate and encourage people to choose which Push or pull factors. I'm sure you've heard in your textbooks. Yeah, yeah so the, the push or pull factors that play into this. So what force people out? Well, there are famines, revolutions plaguing Europe. You also have what is one of the reasons why these people are choosing America now more than ever before. Well, we mentioned this new idea of what America has become after the era of good feelings, after the um, you know uh, War of 1812, where the rest of the world starts to look at us a little, a little bit differently. So there's a growing reputation in the United States as a land of opportunity, maybe more than ever before. So you also have cheap and efficient tra- transportation. The amount of ships that are able to make it across now has increased as well. So all these factors play into the spiking of the uh, immigration between 1830 and 1850s. Nope. Now, when we look at the different demographics, you have to dive into the specific countries that are coming from. The two largest populations coming from Europe at this moment are the Irish and the Germans. Yeah, and when we think of immigrants, there's there are many waves of immigration. This is the first wave of immigration, and it's mostly going to be made up of the northern part of Europe. Irish is the number one thing that you think of when you think of immigration. They come by the droves in two million. They will be displaced and um, the Irish diaspora, as historians will call it, that means the spreading or migration of Irish people, will spread as a result of the potato famine around 1848 in their own country. Um, When they come here, they are going to receive, up until like 1930s, significant discrimination because of their religion. Why? Keep in mind, our society is largely Protestant. Catholicism operates on allegiance or at least loyalty to a particular church hierarchy. Politically speaking, a lot of Protestants are going to view Catholic or Catholic voters for that as a little bit less loyal to their country and more loyal to what is happening in the Vatican. This is one of the many reasons why Irish people, Irish Catholics in particular, will be discriminated in Protestant majority America. And also because, as you mentioned, the influence of Anglo society, you've got the particularly the rivalry of the English always had control over and conquered the Irish. So it's a it's a regional rivalry there for them as well. So with the overwhelming majority of our culture being English culture, that plays into it, that there's a distrust of the Irish for the political reasons you mentioned, and also just because of the violence between the two groups. Um, So they're competing with free blacks for urban jobs. Um, They also have issues where you have most of the Northeast, Boston, Philly, and New York is the cities where they're most likely to congregate. Largely because when you immigrate to a new country, you find people that you know already that maybe came from the previous generation or earlier that spring, your cousins, your neighbors, your family. I know that's how my family came over uh, later on from Ireland. And that is part of the process. So at this moment, immigrants happened to join the Democratic Party the way things were aligned. And they initially were excluded 
from any political party, but really it was in 1880 when they were such an important voting bloc that they started to be competed for amongst the political parties. It's important to know w what kind of party they joined because when we talk about the Civil War and the majority of the Republicans are going to kind of push to kind of bring back the uh, rival or rebellious states back to the Union, a lot of Democrats, we th typically think Democrats in the South, Republicans in the North, there are a lot of Democratic conclaves that Lincoln will have to deal with during the Civil War within the North. New York City being one of the biggest Democratic conclaves. And we will talk about the New York City draft rights in 1863 later. Yes. Um, so the German immigrants start to really peak around 1848 because one million are leaving their country as a result of a revolution. Most of them are skilled farmers, so a lot of them move out and take advantage of the opportunity out in the Old Northwest. But um, one of the things that's unique about the Germans compared to uh, the Irish is that there's a incredible opposition to slavery from this group. And they also were strong supporters of public education. So when, whenever, as you mentioned, there's different waves that come into our country of different Im uh, immigrant groups coming based on economic factors all around the world that bring them here. And in our political history, this is very um, common and it's a recurring theme, is this concept of nativism that comes and goes as whenever there's tends to be economic troubles here in America, we look for someone to blame. And nativism is basically another way of expressing xenophobia. So it's a fear of this new influx of immigrants. You've got the Irish, you've got the Germans, something's wrong, who's the new person here? It's them, that's who we're gonna blame. So this is something that starts around this era in the early 1800s, when first immigrants start to come in large numbers, and then it recurs later after the Civil War, it recurs later right after World War I, after World War II, and it's kind of a wave up back and forth. It surges in different moments in time and others. Specifically, there was emergence of new political parties during this moment, and one of the most nativist parties was a nationalistic party referred to as the American Party or the Know Nothing Party, where they refused to acknowledge the role that immigrants should play in our country and wanted to keep America the way it was. Now we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about what the South was dealing with, whether their culture, what are some of the, uh, you know, burgeoning sectors in their economy, and how it plays a part in sectionalism. In 1861, this region will comprise about 15 states. All but four will secede from the Union. Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri. You should keep those in mind because we will call those the border states. Those are going to be in very particularly um, strategic for Lincoln to keep, and we'll discuss about them more. But it kind of gives you a sense of how um, the Southerners are really looking at the way the federal legislation is passing at what they would think is exploiting their way of life. Agriculture, as you know, is the foundation of the Southern economy. But 1850, there will be some small factories that will contribute to about 50% of the overall nation's manufactured goods. Tobacco, rice, and sugarcane will continue to be lucrative staple crops, but nothing like cotton. As you've learned, the demand of king cotton will rise due to the demand of product from textile industries in England as well as New England. And by 1850s, cotton will provide two-thirds of the nation's exports. That's one of the important things to recognize when we were talking about the nullification crisis is that the fact that the South is so reliant and that two-thirds of our entire country's exports are cotton, right. they stand to lose the most from that tariff issue, and it wasn't going to help them as much as it was going to help the Northerners. Um, now, when you see the peculiar institution, as it was sometimes called in slavery, it was justified as an economic necessity, but Mr. V mentioned earlier that they were hoping it would just kind of you know, sputter out on its own. Um, 
the fact that this was tied to the cotton industry and with the emergence of the cotton gin, it forever changed the history of uh, slavery in our country. So by the 19th century, people that had been apologists before and had made religious arguments about this, they start to ex um, be so bold to say that now um, the institution is actually a positive good, that a there actually is a benefit to being a slave. It's better to be here and have us culture them in American society and Christianity than wherever they were before. So this is one of the things that you start to see is the argument to justify this institution of slavery, which is starting to emerge, and the anti-slavery movement running along parallel to it. It's important to note because, not to say that the people back then were better, but the fact that we had one an intellectual tradition of slowly dissipating this institution, it underlines the assumption that it's bad. Then all of a sudden, people are now not only justifying it from the economic standpoint, but also trying to offer religious and historical arguments that is a necessary good. What happens? Well, slave population will increase from 1 million in 1800 to 4 million in 1860. At some point, we have to discuss that there are other reasons or factors to, de to defend the institution of slavery, albeit it is largely deeply social and it is racial. It is under the assumption that white uh, superiority has to con continue to exist. The influx and the increase in the slave population as it grows, it also grows the fear of a lot of white people and their fear of allowing the possibility of freeing some of these slaves. What will happen if they're no longer in a position of, um, of slavery? What would they do? What would they do to the society in general? And this fear, rooted in racism, is what's going to perpetuate the argument to defend an institution that eventually will not have an economic justification for. In fact, it will go against a lot of the economic interests of poor landless farmers. Yes, and one of the important elements of this is you see the surge in the population. About 75% of the total population starts right. to become slaves at, this, right. at the peak of the Deep South. So part of that is uh, the way in which uh, plays into the slave owner's fear of rebellion is all of a sudden there are more slaves than ever have been there before. But the important thing to mention is not that this is part of the economy, it becomes an economy right. in itself. Right. The slave trade it becomes incredibly right. lucrative, whereas some slaves are being sold for as much as $2,000 for an individual human being at a time of about 1860, at the, at the beginning of the Civil War. So this industry is something in itself that stands to um, you know, gain from the status quo being enabled. And one of the things that makes it more difficult to get rid of is the fact that the South because they're so dependent on slavery, they don't industrialize at the same pace as the North. And then it becomes to a point where they almost have to double down on that. This is our economy. We're just going to ex get as much and squeeze as much money out of it as we can. Um, and that brings us to kind of talk about actually the conditions that slaves are living under in this institution. Uh, it varied from plantation to plantation, but uh, by no means are we trying to say that slaves are treated well at one place and good, and good here, but terrible at other places. You know, some were treated uh, treated humanely, but there's still property. There's still that superiority from the slave owner to the uh, slave. But many were treated incredibly harshly and beaten. So, and this is where paternalism comes to play. Uh, for my kids who remember, paternalism can be used to justify uh, racial superiority, right? Just because you're treating someone nicely, it's the way you're treating them nicely. You're treating them nicely because you feel bad for them. And under that, that assumption is that they're inferior and incapable of kind of uh, being better as equal to you. So 
obligation. It's an obligation. Yeah. So we do have, you know, we have on one spectrum, uh, race, race, racial superiority being manifested through violence, beating slaves. And then in other ways, you have racial superiority being manifested through kind, paternalistic treatment. But it's always under the guise of you are a slave, you will always be a slave, and there's no other way that you cannot be a slave. So this is why the word humanely needs to be kind of an, an, an evaluated and analyzed, as Mr. Yeah. Copeland has mentioned before. Now, when, when we talk about the way in which they control uh, and psychological um, slavery is implemented is, you know, freedom is really the opportunity to live your life as you choose and have a family and things like that. So one of the things they did, and the root of the evil is really... D- separating families and forth, selling children off, selling off companions that might have been husbands or wives in an effort to try and um, maximize their profits. You know, it's really about simply this, this slave is going to make me money. I'm going to sell your kid and your child off to another plantation. Um, the other thing is the fact that black women are incredibly victimized for the, and uh, they're vulnerable to sexual exploitation. And um, there's often stories of our one of our founding fathers Thomas Jefferson about how he had right. a love affair with yeah. his uh, one of his slaves like the name is Sa- uh, Sally, Sally Hemings Hemings oh, Hemings thank you Sally Hemings and if you go to um, Charlottesville North uh, Virginia you can find Monticello you can see the chambers in which she lived and there's a lot of whitewashing sometimes over what actually took place by no means were any of these relationships consensual so just keep that in mind, that they were property and they were there for a purpose, uh, but they were not love affairs that some people might want to take. And it's also hard to get exact numbers as to how many of these women were raped th- throughout the century because, you know, no one's recording this. So this type of, like, action and activity is going to be swept under the rug or whitewashed, as Mr. Copeland said. So this is a particularly troubling aspect um, of slavery that many people have only recently tried to examine, and we have to pay particular attention and consideration to. Yeah. The um, last thing I'll say on that topic is just simply that um, you have a large amount of slave population is birthed by slave owners. There's, uh, I think... Rough estimates now are about 20% of all African Americans have some white ancestry um, from this time period and other um, intermarriages. So how do black slaves have to deal or cope with all of this horror um, as a function of the institution of slavery? Well, religion is one of the means of coping with their oppression. Black churches that will be set up, that will be allowed to set up in the Deep South, will form as conclaves. So every Sunday is their way and ability to worship. And the idea of Christianity, the idea of entering into the kingdom of heaven, offers solace to those who have, are beaten, who are sexually exploited, who have their families separated, um, who are you know, p- patronized in some way. And, and the black church is one of the biggest like institutions that provide cohesion to the black culture. And that will be, that'll be true up until the 20th century, up until the 1960s when we reach Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders. So keep in mind that Christianity, as much as it can also uh, be used and misinterpreted to justify the institution of slavery, religion also can be used to kind of cope with this harsh existence. One of the important things is that uh, resistance isn't always in the form of direct resistance. Sometimes you have to do things indirectly. There were work slowdowns. There were purposeful sabotages of of harvests. 
Often, slaves would try and escape. There are several uprisings. Not many, very many were successful. Uh, we mentioned Nat Turner's rebellion in the previous podcast, but one of the things that is most common is just slowing things down or even just burning down a, a, a section of the crops or burning down a farm. By accident, quote-unquote. Yes. And that's one of the ways in which they try and handle that. I have to mention that, because, and it's very easy to do that. Some of you would be like, well, how do, how do white slave owners allow that to happen? Well, uh, black people at this time are very aware of how white people view them. So they will actually use white people's feelings of superiority against them. So if white people think that black people are incapable, a good way of sabotaging an, a factory or even a crop field is just to pretend that you're stupid make a mistake pretend that you didn't know any better and kind of cater to the belief systems that they had so these are very nuanced approaches um that 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 kind of was that black people were able to do without necessarily getting punished for now one of the bad things about the uh, uprisings was that it increased the southerners fear of more of them happening so there started to be a cramp uh, a clamp down and strict rules were applied one of the things you see is that southerners start to defend slavery on a larger scale and northerners become much more critical of slavery the news or the awareness of these uh, rebellions brings to light the horrors and the fear of them so not all black people were in chains in the south that is another misconception that a lot of you probably have by 1860 a quarter million african-americans are in the South are going to be free. Some will be emancipated historically through the American Revolution. Some will be mulatto children that were freed by their white fathers. As Mr. Copeland mentioned, a lot of the slave populations will be fathered and sired by white plantation owners. Others will achieve freedom of their own through a self-purchase with the case of Booker T. Washington. Most of these Southern free blacks will live in cities, however, and they're not going to own property. These state laws, again, will restrict them from voting and will be barred from entering certain occupations of high regard. Free blacks will have to constantly provide documentation to assert their freedom, so lest they be mistaken for a runaway slave and then be sent back to a plantation. They had to constantly fear slave bounty hunters who had mistaken them for runaway slaves. In fact, there's a movie that is made famous, 12 Years a Slave, in which a man is mistaken for being a runaway slave and sent back for 12 years being a slave. So it begs the question, why do they stay in the South? Yeah, well, the thing you have to think about is if only thing you've ever known is living in one place, it's not so easy to just go start somewhere else. Um, travel was very difficult and expensive, so you don't have the means to move to the North. It's much more difficult. And if you escape or you happen to be fortunate enough to buy your freedom somehow, well, guess what? You're you, doing something in a solitary adventure is very challenging. You also know a lot of those people that are still enslaved. So wanting to be close to or maybe give hope to the people that are maybe still enslaved, opportunities for them to join you later on, a lot of their family members still are slaves. So these are the factors which cause people to maybe stay a lot closer than you would think would make sense if you just want to get out of there to avoid a lot of the difficulties that they're dealt with. All right. Um, now, when we look at different factors in the South, you also have to look at white society. You have to look at it critically in terms of how there's a strict hierarchy and it reinforces the superiority of uh, white culture. So when we look at this rigid hierarchy, we have to look at this aristocracy is all of the slave owners, the wealthy landowning elite. We saw this emerge all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion, where you have the haves and the have-nots. Most of the large plantation owners had between 100 slaves uh, or more, and many of them had over thousands acres of land. And these people with 
with money comes power, comes influence, and they're able to dominate many of the state legislatures. And a lot of the way in which, especially in Virginia, the Burgesses, the representatives, were based off how much land you had, whether or not you're a landowner was what got you into politics at this time. So the landowners had all the power. And the next step below the social ladder will be just your general farmers. A vast majority of them will be slave owners, like their aristocracy, aristocratic friends, but they're going to own maybe fewer than 20 slaves, and they're only going to hold about several hundred acres. They will produce the bulk of the cotton crop, and they will work long and sometimes even interact, albeit forced interaction with their slaves. About 75% of the southern white population, however, will be what we characterize as poor whites. These people did not own slaves, yet they're still going to defend slavery in the hope that one day they could actually own one of their own. Or they will hope, at the end of the day, I call this the Burr-Sewell syndrome, for those of you who have read To Kill a Mockingbird, at least they are better than black people. At the end of the day, they're on the poor, at the bottom end of the social triangle, but if slaves remain slaves, at least they're better than somebody. So this is some of the reason why a lot of poor whites will defend an institution that goes against their own personal economic interests. Many will live in the hills as subsistence farmers. This is where we get the term hillbillies from. They're not going to get choice pieces of land. In fact, they're going to be known as, since the Bacon's Rebellion, we've known this, they're going to not get choice pieces of land. They will take solace, as I mentioned before, that they were superior to slaves. So we also have the mountain people, which basically they're isolated farmers. They're either in the Appalachian or the Ozark Mountains, and they basically just are bitter and dislike everybody around them. Not only do they dislike slaves, but the plantation owners are the people that have all the power. So uh, there's an independence that is the common thread about these people, that they view themselves as frontiersmen that can make it on their own. And the unique thing about them is many of them are loyal to the Union during the Civil War because of the fact of their um, distaste and dislike for the plantation owner and the, the power that they had in the government in the South. They're able to recognize yeah. the, the economic um, you know exploitation that happens under the institution of slavery. Although they are not even close to being abolitionists, they are going to be joining the side of the Union during the Civil War. Um, cities are going to also develop in the South as well, and one of the major flagship cities that you should all know is a city called New Orleans. It's the 15th largest city in the nation by 1860. It is, was once um, owned by uh, France, and then before that Spain, and then before that France again. It is an influx of a variety of cultures, truly a melting pot city. Uh, Atlanta, Charleston, Chattanooga, and Richmond were going to also be cities and be trading centers with also modest populations. So we have to kind of dispel this misconception that the South uh, did not have major cities. These are some of the major cities that you should uh, think about when we talk about the Civil War. Now, the Southern um, ideology and thought is also driven by this feudal um, political sense. You know, the socio-political context of our of our country is that the South is much more where land is the is the ruler in the um, politics, but its land is the determining factor of your wealth and your status. So that's what we mean by feudal. And um, there's this other unique culture that uh, is developing, which is kind of like a code of chivalry, where there's a personal honor in a way you carry yourself for Southern men. And their job is to defend womanhood and yet be paternalistic towards slaves and uh, people of color. So the way you have to look at this is kind of, it kind of serves as we are the hero that's always going to save the day. I'm here, I'm in control of the slaves in order to protect womanhood. And that plays into a lot of the racism uh, coming out of the 
end of slavery after the 1860s. Um, at the same time, education, it's valued amongst the upper class gentrymen. There are acceptable professions by the upper class, whether it be uh, law, become a minister, or join the military, but the vast majority of people are going to be farmers for obvious reasons down here. But education is largely unavailable to the lower class whites we spoke of, and it's obviously prohibited from for slaves. There will be some cases where slaves will either teach themselves how to write or even get uh, their owners to teach them how to write. But for the most part, it, they're going to be barred from this type of wholesale uh, accessible education. Religion is going to be, as always, a huge focal point for uh, black uh, communities in the South as well as white communities. Uh, most of the Protestant sects will support the institution of slavery. It's going to be very popular. Methodists and Baptists, particularly during this time, will gain membership for their unapologetic defense on the institution of slavery. And Unitarians, Episcopalians, and Catholics are certainly not welcomed. Again, these are more uh, progressive or liberal sects of Christianity. And of course, Catholics have always been viewed as suspicion with other Protestant churches. So this is how religion uh, or some communities, religious communities, are going to reinforce not only the Southern way of thought, but also the institution of slavery. And that brings us to the West. So our final section in this um, part of the notes revolving around sectionalism is the emerging West, and one of the most important things it provides is a new market, a place that is going to give the demand for all the supply that the South and the North have. So if you think about it, the West started off as anything that wasn't on the coast when our country started in the 1600s and colonies were all uh, along the coastline. And then eventually the West was simply anything west of the Appalachian Mountains. But now at this point in the mid-1800s, after the Louisiana Purchase, it's basically anything across the Mississippi and towards the Pacific Coast. That's considered the West in this time period. And you have to look at it from who's inhabiting the West, largely American Indians. So what you have to look at is how do we go about seizing their land and what conflicts occur in order for this to happen? So there's a mass exodus. There's a, a basically the American Indians flee for their own safety. By 1850, the vast majority of them are living west of the Mississippi River. They viewed that as something that would help protect them. But the Great Plains only provide temporary relief as more and more Americans travel west by the decade. And especially with the expansion of the railroad, that's really what changes and brings the American people west more than ever before in the second half of the 1800s. So when we have horses that have been there for generations, that have been brought by the Spanish that are running wild, they really revolutionized the way the Native Americans hunted. Many of them had domesticated the horses and used them um, in their efforts to hunt uh, the bison and the um, buffalo. But um, the tribe of the Sioux and the Cheyenne, they become known for their nomadic societies, largely because of the way they utilize um, and had tamed the horses. But the high mobility allowed them to move away from any advancing settlers, but also oppose them by force. So it, it gave them uh, the diversification to either fight or flee based on what they were confronted with. Now, the frontier can either be described as a literal frontier, as a geographical line where someone can go beyond the scope of civilization, or a metaphorical frontier. And in this case, uh, American history, there is both. There is a geographical line, but it will change. Obviously, as we spread west, cities will also develop, and then it will no longer become the frontier because there will be access to a civilization. However, the concept of the frontier will not. It will always represent the frontier, the possibility of a, quote, a fresh start, the American dream, manifest destiny, a city upon a hill, all this, this ability for frustrated people that are not really happy with what's happening in the establishment um, in the East 
always feel they have a second chance or second hope out west. This is unique to our country. You can't get this in England. Frustrated working class individuals have nowhere to go. And where do you get when you get frustrated? When it's all bo bo like boiled up, something has to give. So a lot of people, particularly Frederick uh, Turner's uh, frontier thesis, is a thesis that basically explains why America was able to only have one revolution, one civil war. It was because of the tremendous availability of land. And the idea of the frontier was a way to kind of dissipate or mitigate the tensions of a working class that would have otherwise started rioting and, f and having civil wars. So this is some of the reasons why we discover and discuss the frontier at length. Yeah, that's one of the things that I know Henry Louis Gates brings up a lot. Um, and he's a Harvard professor, historian, is that, what, as you mentioned, and you really stole the words out of my mouth that I was going to say was, <laughs> you know, the unique opportunity that America provides people that anywhere else in the world wouldn't be able to access the land that they have here. So uh, in, in addition to the frontier, we also have emergence of different type of um, ideal man, I guess you could say, for the frontier. American society starts to promote this concept of mountain men or frontiersmen, that they really either are serving as guides all the way out to the Rockies, we'll take you out there. Uh, the Lewis and Clark expeditions early on that were commissioned after the purchase of Louisiana Purchase, they are uh, idealized in our country for quite some time. But these pathfinders, these people that are going to say, you're interested in going there, I can bring you there. Um, and also this idea of uh, the rugged individualist we mentioned before, that the people that can go out to the West and make it on their own, they're really the true American dream of being able to take advantage of the opportunity. And what greater way to test, quote-unquote, the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race than putting yourself in a position of the early settlers? So by the 1840s and 1850s, the daily life out in the frontier is very going to be much similar to the early colonists of the 16 and 1700s. Women are going to perform a variety of necessary tasks of doctor, teacher, seamstress, and cook. However, due to tremendous amounts of isolation, endless work, and childbirth will result in shorter lifespans for these women. Despite all of this, because of survival, women, interestingly enough, are going to be put on a more equal playing field along with their man in these regions than in the East. It's just a necessity, really. Out of necessity. And I would even say full equality. But you'll notice, especially in the early 1900s, most of these territories that will later become Western states are going to be the first state governments that will slowly pass state laws that will provide for women's suffrage. It might be from this history or legacy that we get more progressive uh, voting rights for women out that makes, here. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, lastly, we'll conclude talking about the environmental damage of the West. And what we see, it's very common, is as we move West, we need space. Deforestation is what happens. And um, the complete decimation of forests also sometimes has unintended consequences of destroying the wildlife within them. Um, another common issue, it starts in the southeast, but it emerges is when you routinely plant and use the same exact plots of land season after season, eventually you have soil exhaustion. You, we learn eventually to rotate the plots of land from season to season so they be able to regenerate and recoup their nutrients. But soil exhaustion becomes a problem because as people move west, they're only entitled to so much land. And as they exha exhaust the opportunity for them to build, uh, excuse me, grow crops, that presents a problem. Uh, and then the last thing is really the buffalo or the bison, um, who are the lifeblood of the Native Americans, that they, they use them for 
everything within their society, uh, along with the beaver trading that's been going on for generations, hundreds or so of years since we've had settlers in North America, they are uh, been exploited to the point where now they were both on the brink of extinction. And that is something that takes generations to come back from uh, when we finally recognize that we need to do something about that. So um, this will conclude part one of 4-4 Notes with sectionalism. Uh, we're going to pick it up next shortly after this with a short podcast on westward expansion. Take care.